everyone, and welcome to episode 32 of Under Further Review with Burke and Jen. I'm Burke. I'm Jen. Um, and I think we're going to kick today's podcast off with um, what has been the biggest celebrity justice story of, um, certainly of this week, um, the competing lawsuits involving uh, an allegation of sexual assault by Taylor Swift against a radio DJ from Denver who... Um, had sued her for um, tortious interference and uh, basically uh, attempting to, or ending with him being fired from his job as a DJ in Denver. Um, the whole situation stems from a concert that um, Taylor Swift had in Denver back in, I believe it was 2013, um, where at a meet and greet photo op um, during or at the time of the concert, um, David Mueller, who formerly worked as a DJ for 98.5 KYGO in Denver, wow. um, and his then girlfriend went and had their photo taken with Ms. Swift. At which time, um, Taylor Swift alleges that uh, Mr. Mueller stuck his hand up her skirt and grabbed her bare ass, um, latched onto it, and then didn't let go until after the photo was taken. Um, the story then goes that she and her team reported this to the uh, radio station. Mueller was ultimately fired from his job. Um, he filed a lawsuit against Taylor Swift seeking, I think, in excess of $3 million in damages. Um, she countersued for sexual assault uh, based on his groping of her, um, and she is seeking $1 in damages. Um, I think mostly to prove a point that she's not doing this to make more money, but to um, you know establish that this guy did something really horrible to her, mm -hmm. and uh, she's not going to take this fight lying down. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think her countersuit was... Basically, to say to him, you're not going to get away with um, blaming me for what's happening here. Right. So, um, there was a lot of testimony in the trial this week. Both Taylor Swift and her mom, Andrea Smith, testified, or Swift, excuse me, testified um, in court, in federal court in Denver. Um, Mrs. Swift talked about, you know, learning about what happened to Taylor that night, seeing the photo, and that her. You know, just telling by her face and her body language something really wrong was um, happening there. Um, Taylor Swift, I thought her testimony was really compelling. Um, she, I guess, David Mueller's attorney seemed to be trying to get her to agree that, like, nothing really bad happened. You know, if you were actually being assaulted, why didn't you react? Why didn't you end the photo shoot? Why didn't your bodyguard step in? Um, why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? And she was not having it. Um, her responses were very pointed. I believe she kept referring to the attorney by his first name, Gabe. <laughs> Eat shit, Gabe. No. <laughs> A power move by T. Swift. <laughs> um, she would not call him sir. Um, you know, the... Long story short, I don't think the testimony went very well for Mr. Mueller's team. I don't think so either. I mean, she, as you said, her testimony was very pointed. She said, he did not touch my ribs. He did not touch my arm. He did not touch my hand. He grabbed my bare ass. Um, so it was, you know, it's very succinct. And it's it's not covered in, you know, whether she was, like, seemingly apologetic or, like, this could have happened. No, no. She was very, very pointed in what she said and I think it was very effective I yeah you know one question I've seen come up in some news reports about this or commentary about it is this worked obviously worked very well for her because his um, claims against her for trying to get him fired have been dismissed which we'll talk about um, in a couple minutes but 
would this work for other women? Like, is this a successful strategy for all women? Or just because she's Taylor Swift, she could, you know, for lack of a better term, get away with pushing back on this man who is trying to force her to take responsibility for being assaulted? You know, I don't know, actually. Um, I think it probably depends on the situation. It depends on, um, obviously, like, if you've gotten a read of the jury. And I think it's also part of your own personality. Because if you are there on the witness stand and you are portraying yourself in a way that's not you, I think that's transparent, right? Yeah. Um, Whereas I think this is very much true to her form. She is a very, like... She knows herself and she knows her power, for lack of a better term. And um, I think she has an understanding of that. I, um, one of the probably the most quoted lines from her testimony all week was when uh, Gabe tried <laughs> to blame uh, Taylor Swift for what happened to Mr. Mueller, essentially the fact that he got fired. And she said, I'm being blamed for the unfortunate events of his life that are part of his decision, that are a product of his decisions, not mine. So very clearly, um, you know, just putting the ball right back in his court about, look, if you didn't want to be fired, you shouldn't have touched my bare ass. Right. She's not property that's just because you paid money to get your picture taken with her Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you get to grope her. Um, What is sort of interesting is that I think a criticism of Taylor Swift, this isn't really a legal issue, but um, a criticism of Taylor Swift is sort of a person, you know, a celebrity out in the world is that she plays the victim a lot. This was a common refrain we heard during the Mm -hmm. whole Kanye, Kim um, incident that, you know, she tries to pretend like she's this poor, innocent girl that people are so terrible to and Mm -hmm. um, to see her kind of take ownership of her. And maybe that's a lesson she learned after that whole situation that, you know, acting like she's this damsel in distress is maybe not going to work for her anymore. Or, you know, I would be furious if some jackass groped me, sued me because he lost his own damn job and now is trying to make me feel bad. Um, for standing up for myself. You know, either way, I think it clearly worked for her um, since, as I mentioned, the charge or the claims against Taylor Swift um, have been dismissed. There are also, there remain outstanding claims by Mr. Mueller against Taylor Swift's mother and um, I think her management company through one of her friends who works for the management company. Um, Mueller's attorneys at the time that the claims against Swift were dismissed attempted to amend their claims by saying that um, they wanted to clarify that um, they were actually suing Andrea Swift and the management company as like friends and relatives of Taylor Swift. So there was some kind of vicarious liability that she had. Um, The judge said no. Uh, (laughs) um, Basically said the court's not going to permit amendments at this time and then said on the record that Mueller and his team um, were providing new and still poorly articulated claims of vicarious liability. Um, If it's not obvious, it's really, it's not good to have a judge call you out for your poorly articulated claims ever, but especially not on the record in the middle of a True. Hearing. The uh, jury had been sent home at that point at the time that the Mueller's case was dismissed. Um, so 
the standing claims are, as Burke said, the ones against uh, Taylor Swift's mother, the management company, and then Taylor Swift's sexual allegation suit against him. Right. Against Mueller. So um, I believe I read somewhere that Taylor Swift's team is, are not going to call any additional witnesses, that they're going to let the testimony stand from all of last week's uh, witness uh, um questioning uh so that they wouldn't have to you know basically regurgitate the same story because i don't think that this was an event that took that lasted over a period of like days and months it was literally probably a 30 second to a minute interaction and so um and they've already spent four days talking about it um i think that that's probably the bulk of um what's been going on and i think to your point about how taylor swift has been portrayed or portrays herself as sometimes the victim of things, especially I think in her songwriting, mm-hmm. like her bad breakups with boyfriends and things right. like that. I mean, I don't know that you become a, you know, Grammy winning artist at however young she was if she didn't have like some sort of persona, like that it's kind of a front that maybe she's a little more calculated is I think that's probably yeah. true. And I don't mean calculated in a pejorative way, but I think that if you if you get to a point in your life where you are at the pinnacle of your profession, there's got to be some ambition and some strategy that get that helps get you there. Right. And her I mean, to anyone who follows followed, I guess it's a little hard to follow her now because she has been largely out of the spotlight since the Kanye incident. Um but she, her, yeah, her, her whole persona does seem a little bit contrived. Like, she's trying very hard mm-hmm. to only let you see what she wants you to see. So, um, this, I mean, we may have seen the real Taylor Swift here that, you know, she's someone who is in charge and mm-hmm. doesn't take crap from anybody. Certainly not this ridiculous little man who's trying to make her take, res- again, take responsibility for something that he she did. has no responsibility yeah. for because she didn't do anything wrong here. Um, well, yeah, and even if this is even if this is part of her persona or another facet of it, it's you know it's a really effective one. Yeah. Um, so the trial, I guess, carries on um, with the outstanding claims that uh, have yet to be settled. Um, there were. In addition to dismissing the claims against um, Swift, the judge made a couple of other rulings on Friday. Um, he, there was part of the rationale for the, I mean, I don't think this would have supported $3 million in damages, <laughs> but part of the rationale for the damages that Mueller was seeking was that in his contract with the radio station, there was an option to extend his contract by a year. So he was fired with five months left on the Oh, I thought initial. he was... I thought he was fired six months into his two-year contract, so that he would he's only he had only been there for six months and he had a year and a half left on his contract. Which no, that's not what this <laughs> report is saying. Okay. Although I feel I will be honest with you, this is something we were talking about. Off, honest with you, listeners, um, this is something we were talking about offline. The reporting on this, like what we try to do with this case, is overcome crappy reporting on um, a lot of legal issues. The challenge with that is that the <laughs> We don't go to these trials, obviously, so there's only so much we can kind of overcome. I think I'm starting to learn. (laughs) So if we, if we are reported, if report, yeah, bad facts are reported out to us, um, it's a little challenging for us to, um, 
do a better job. But we're working on it, guys. So hang with us. <laughs> so in any event, he was he was fired partway through a contract for however long that contract was. Exactly. And it sounds like there was an option for another year. Right. And the upshot of all of this is that the judge basically said that he could continue to claim damages for the part of his contract that was effectively guaranteed. So whether it's 18 months or, or five months, that piece stands that the in order to prove that they that the defendants in that case Andrea Swift and the management company should have to pay him for that year long option mm-hmm. um, they would have to prove that Andrea Swift and the management company knew about the clause in his contract and like actively tried to get him fired you know a year earlier than he otherwise would have which they had no reason to know that and he couldn't prove that they knew that yeah. so long story short is that piece of his damage claim has been tossed out oh. as well okay. so even if he were to even if he were to prevail against uh, mrs swift and the management company his three million dollar uh, damages claim has just taken suffered a blow right and he also his claim for future earnings which i suspect is where the lion's share of those damages comes from yes. that also got thrown out oh okay. um the judge found that he hadn't met this claim for future earnings because he said he wasn't asking for a specific amount and left it up to the jury <laughs> to decide how much his future earnings would have been worth um finally landing on you can look for you can request the five months of um pay and damages because um lost profits are claimable if they can be proven with reasonable certainty they can't be based on speculation Speculation. the estimates i don't know why i'm having trouble speaking today (laughs) this is a real mess sorry folks (laughs) um so that's from the land of taylor swift um i think the other really big celebrity legal story um is usher oh boy so Usher has been sued by three people most recently um, under the claim that he gave them herpes or he did not disclose that he had herpes when he had unprotected sex with them. So this actually goes, the story goes back several years. Um, In about 2010 or 2012, he was sued by a woman who had unprotected sex with Usher and, and she later on tested positive for herpes and um they settled out of court for 1.1 million dollars and you know her position basically was i wouldn't have had unprotected sex with him had i known that he had herpes um according to that suit uh usher's doctor told the woman that usher was diagnosed with herpes in and around 2009 or 2010 um then fast forward a few years later to i think earlier this year maybe in april of 2017 a woman sued Usher for $10 million, um, who said that she and Usher had unprotected sex twice. And again, she said in her suit that she would not have consented to have unprotected sex with Usher had she known of his health status. And her suit was for $10 million. She later tested positive for herpes, and so she changed her damages to $20 million. I believe that suit is still ongoing. And then Lisa Bloom, a very famous... um, plaintiff's attorney in Los Angeles and represented uh, as a Janice Janice Dickinson in her lawsuit against Bill Cosby. Yes. She represents three individuals um, who all have had unprotected sex with Usher and you know their position is that they would not have had unprotected sex with him had they known um, had he disclosed that uh, he had herpes and 
in the state of California transmitting a communicable disease intentionally without providing um, the individual with notice um, and getting their consent is a misdemeanor. And Lisa Bloom's read on that law, so one of her clients who has come out publicly um, has not tested, she had sex with Usher two years ago, I think it Mm -hmm. is at this point. She has not tested positive for herpes, but um, I was reading a transcript of a um, press conference that Lisa Bloom and her client gave and Lisa Bloom's position is that um, it doesn't matter that she didn't get sick under California law. Mm-hmm. Um, if just the simple act of not dis- failing to disclose that you have a sexually transmitted disease is sufficient to, uh, and then having sex with somebody is sufficient to um, support a claim against that person. Um, mm-hmm. So the claims that the three bloom clients have filed include sexual battery fraud negligence and intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress um another kind of odd aspect of this is that his uh, usher's insurance company is now trying to claim that they don't need to help defend him or pay out any of these settlement amounts because he willfully hid from them that he had herpes Um, and so they basically they didn't know that they were insuring somebody with herpes they can't be held responsible for paying these claims that are filed against him it's my understanding they are currently defending him in the claims that are pending right now in georgia and california um, but they've reserved their right to seek recoupment of all costs should a court decide that they aren't liable to cover these claims Lisa Bloom says she hates insurance companies or does not like insurance companies <laughs> when asked. Uh, yes, I'm assuming that most plaintiff's attorneys don't really like insurance companies yeah, when her, asked. Her position was basically they never want to pay anybody. Um, this doesn't surprise me. It doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Usher. I will say Lisa Bloom in her um, comments has been pretty like shaming towards people with sexually transmitted diseases, which I'm not sure that's like the best way to go, but that's her position at this point. Um, So it seems like a lot of mudslinging, which is something I feel like we see quite a bit in these celebrity cases. Usher's camp has come out saying that he, uh, one of Ms. Bloom's clients is um, a more full-figured woman and um usher's team has said well he is not into that he never would have had sex with her she's making the whole story up um which is just shitty and terrible so um no matter what happens i don't think he anyone's coming out of this case looking particularly great and now we know that usher probably has herpes which is (laughs) information i don't think i needed (laughs) no but not no neither did i so um yeah, yeah, so we'll see how this all plays out. It's a, as a, as we said, the woman who filed suit in April for twenty million dollars, I mean, hers is probably at the you know very embryonic stages of litigation, and the uh, three complainants who filed most recently, I mean, that's I think they just literally filed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think this kind of came to at least my attention with the insurance company coming out and saying they didn't want to have to defend him. Um, so. That's, yeah, it seems like this whole process is moving along pretty slowly, but um, if we get any updates, we'll be sure to provide them to you. Yes, and speaking of Lisa Bloom, she represents two uh, plaintiffs in a lawsuit filed against Draymond Green. 
So this lawsuit stems from a, an altercation in a restaurant slash maybe nightclub in East Lansing, Michigan from last year. Mm-hmm. Um, the allegations are that Draymond Green um, and two of his friends slash bodyguards slash also groomsmen at a wedding that he was going to roughed up uh, a Michigan State University football player. Um, and then one of the said bodyguards slash friends slash groomsmen also roughed up the Michigan State University football player's girlfriend and on one evening and then the very next evening they ran into each other again very small town apparently um, and Draymond Green and these two individuals had some words and Draymond I think slapped the football player as a result of the words and um, in any event he was charged with um, assault and was it something else that he was charged with he eventually got that pled to a noise violation and paid a $560 fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so the criminal case against Draymond Green has gone away, but these individuals have filed a civil suit against um, Mr. Green in Alameda Superior Court um, because Draymond is lives and works in the Bay Area. Um, yes, he does. Yes, he does. <laughs> so, you know, in reading the complaint... The allegations um, in the complaint are assault, battery, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. They, the football player and his girlfriend, um, I think his, the football player's name is Jermaine and the girlfriend's name is Bianca, and I can't mm-hmm. remember their last names. Edmondson and Williams. Oh, there you go. Um, they said that, you know, after, even during the altercation, like, no one came to his aid because they didn't want to, like you know, cross Draymond or they, they didn't want to seem like, I mean, it, clearly they were either intimidated by him or the celebrity power of him kept them from coming to the rescue of these two individuals, which I kind of find a little bizarre. But um, even after these events at school, uh, both Miss Edmonds, Mr. Edmondson and Ms. Williams yeah. um, were ridiculed by other students and um, you know, and their made their life was made unbearable. So Mr. Edmondson, I think, had to transfer. I don't know if she's still in school at Michigan State, but um, so yeah, that's about the size of it. <laughs> um, Draymond, there's some speculation that the reason that they came out and kind of publicly announced what they were doing is that they've been engaged in settlement talks, and he's not moving. Yeah, um, and it doesn't sound like he is going to move. No, and in fact, she, uh, Lisa Bloom. Based, you know, tweeted out that a lawsuit was going to be filed. I think almost 18 hours before she even filed the complaint in court. So, you know, not only does that give the press a chance to like gather themselves and and start asking questions, but it is a very public strategy for um, pushing parties to get closer to settlement. And she has Lisa Bloom has been um, citing Draymond's um, mm-hmm. actions on the basketball court as you know support for her and her client's position that he's just a bully mm-hmm. and a mean nasty guy because um, he beats up people he plays basketball against. Yeah. Um, now none of that evidence or I shouldn't say none likely none of that evidence would ever be admissible in court um, basketball fans would know that about Draymond Green but um, it wouldn't be something wouldn't be evidence that um, the plaintiffs could offer in court to prove that he engaged in battery and assault against them mm-hmm. and it sounds like for at least the first night of the altercation it was the, the friends the friends right so the story I think goes that Jermaine Edmondson and his girlfriend Bianca Williams were at a bar that Draymond and his friends showed up at. Draymond bumped into Edmondson, who 
who then turned around and was basically like, you could at least say, excuse me, which, <laughs> I mean, I, I get that. It's obnoxious to have somebody run into you. And then Draymond turned around and started yelling at him like, I know who you are and I pay for people scholarships. Yeah. Um, and at that point, um, Edmondson was choked by one of Draymond's friends. And then Williams was also choked by one of Draymond's friends. Allegedly. I don't think there were the charges that were filed against Draymond in Michigan, I believe related to the, they must've related to the second the night. Second night. As far as I know, no charges were ever, um, filed, filed over, over the friends. Exactly. Over this first incident. And so then as Jen explained, the next night they ran into him again. <laughs> um, and apparently Edmondson tried to talk to him about the incident the night before and Draymond just punched him in the face. I thought he slapped him in the face. Well, maybe he, I guess that could be Draymond saying he slapped him and the, this guy saying he punched him in the face. But according to Edmondson's comments at the press conference, I don't know if that lines up with what he said in the complaint, um, but he was punched in the face by Draymond Green. Oh. Well, it was just maybe the way that he phrased it, because he said something like, I could still feel his hand on my face. And like when I think of hand, I think of an open hand as opposed yeah, to like I can like still feel fist. his fist on my face. Yeah. So that's why um, I thought it was a slap and not a punch. Um, and because of the ridicule and derision that he faced afterwards um, from people. And they are also, during this press conference, Edmondson said it really bothered him that Draymond gets all this credit for being great for women when he stood by while his friends choked out um, Ms. Williams. Mm -hmm. And what he was referencing is that um, Draymond Green has been involved with the Lean In organization um, in Silicon Valley uh, to work uh, for equality for men and women at home and in the workplace. Yeah. And the, um, the complaint just said that Mr. Green hit Mr. Edmondson in the face. The hit emitted a loud slap or smack sound. Oh, so, all right. Yeah. Well. Maybe that's where I got the slap from. That could be. And I think the uh, it was actually Ms. Edmondson who said... Mr. Edmondson. Sorry, yeah, I meant Ms. Williams, um, who said that Draymond punched Mr. Edmondson in the face. So okay. just a lot of, a lot of information running around. <laughs> um, but in any event, it appears like this process is going to move forward in the courts. There's not a pending settlement now, so we could go to that hearing and yes, report back. that's true, because that is close to us, but <laughs> I cannot imagine just, like, what jury selection would look like in Alameda County. Right. Yeah, and I wonder, I guess because Lisa Bloom isn't barred in Michigan, that's why they didn't sue him there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, She's only barred in California and New York, York, in case any of you were curious. Right, and there's really no connection between this case and New York so she was a little bit limited I guess in where she could file a lawsuit mm -hmm. um, but yeah you're right I don't know how they're going to find a jury full of people <laughs> who would hold Draymond Green responsible for much yes. um, except being awesome and, <laughs> and um, we're not homers or anything no I also think at some point his people are going to tell him just like pay and make this go away yeah. because the real. I mean, one thing he should probably keep in mind is um, that there is a clause in the NBA collective bargaining agreement that says if you engage in conduct detrimental to the league, the league can hold you responsible. Oh yeah. Um. So yeah, and all of his endorsements, endorsement deals, um, come with morality clauses. Right. So if he has, if he is found by any of his endorsers 
um, to have violated this clause, they could, you know. I mean, I would think his argument could be that, like, you stood by me while I punched people in the nuts and didn't do anything about it, and now you're going to try and void my contract. But typically, there are clauses in contracts that say just because we don't enforce one waiver yeah. doesn't mean we can't ever enforce a waiver. So Yes, and I'm, you know, and going to your point earlier, I'm going to assert that I'm sure his on-the-court <laughs> conduct is treated very differently and looked upon very differently sure. at, um, as compared to his off-the-court conduct. And I think that would apply in, you know, almost any professional sport. Um, yeah, so uh, we will keep you posted on the Draymond Green happenings. If I run into him again at Soul Cycle, um, because he and I are now workout buddies, <laughs> I will um, see if I can get some information out of him without getting punched in the face. <laughs> hope. Um, so, or kicked, you know. I mean, he'd have to get his feet out of the clips before he could kick me, so uh, I'll just stay out of like, range. Um, but yeah, we'll see how this moves on. I mean, this trial could take forever because that's what happens with court cases, as oh, yeah. you may have noticed by a number of the items we've discussed over the yes. weeks. Yes, um, when we say, and you know, it was filed in 2014 and is now only coming to. Right, that's condition. not uncommon. No, it's not. <laughs> um, Speaking of another case that is probably going to move to trial, uh, this is actually a really sad case. So Kid Creole, um, a founding member of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, was um, indicted by a grand jury for murder. Um, this happened a few weeks ago. He was coming out of his workplace. He worked um, as a service person in an office building in Midtown Manhattan, and John Jolly, who's about 55 years old and a homeless man, said something to Kid Creole, whose actual name is Nathan, Nathaniel Glover, excuse me. Um, they got into a verbal altercation, and at some point, uh, Kid Creole grabbed a steak knife, which he kept hidden in his sleeve, taped to his arm with a rubber band. I think oh, it was yes. just rubber banded <laughs> to his arm. Grabbed a steak knife from his, um, you know, that was like, taped to his arm, and then stabbed Jolly a few times, and then Jolly then succumbed to his injuries. Uh, Creole said that he believed that Jolly was trying to proposition him or come on to him, um, whereas I think the prosecutor just said that uh, Jolly was just trying to engage uh, Creole in some kind of conversation. Um, yeah, it's 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 really sad. Whole, yeah, I mean, as I understand uh, it... Kid Creole has basically admitted that he stabbed the guy. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and he has said that he thought that um, Jolly was trying to proposition him. So homophobia kills folks. Like, let's <laughs> keep that in mind. Yes. Uh, According to, um, was it Dahl is the process? Yeah, Mark Dahl, the assistant district attorney, said... Um, Glover told him that after his arrest, he thought Jolly was hitting on him, and he thought he was gay, and, quote, that infuriated him, unquote. Um, so, a sad story for all, um, given that it sounds like Glover, Kid Creole, has basically admitted to all of the uh, actions that led to Mr. Jolly's death. Um, I would be surprised if he did try to plead out. Oh, um, Yeah. Definitely. But this is super early in the um, process, so uh, I don't think we're at that stage point yet. So I think, aside from the fact that uh, you know a man lost his life in this this incident with um, 
Nathaniel Glover, I think this, the saddest part for me is that Kid Creole was a maintenance man in Midtown Manhattan. I know now, which is not to say that that's not like an honest good job, exactly. um, but yeah, the fact that he's part of one of the like greatest hip hop acts <laughs> of all time that kind of founded the music, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, that he's fallen kind of far is pretty sad. It feels like he should have been celebrated and. Yeah, doing or, something exactly, or that you know, or the management of however like royalties were distributed and all of those things. Like you would hope that um, they would be in a position where you wouldn't have to necessarily. Yeah, did Grandmaster Flash get all of the money? Yeah, I don't know, <laughs> but they were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in two thousand seven. They were the first rap act to be inducted. As so, well, they should have been. Yes. White Lines is one of my favorite songs still. Um, I really love the scene in Shaun of the Dead where they're drunk singing it walking down the street. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's um, our Kid Creole story. Moving along, we are brisk business today. We have a lot of, a lot's been going on this week, so... Um, so moving on to Ezekiel Elliott. So this isn't so much legal per se. Uh, this is really more in terms of what Burke and I do on a day-to-day basis. So Ezekiel Elliott, who's running back for the Dallas Cowboys, was suspended by the NFL for six games for violation of the like the player conduct policy. Yes, Article yeah. 46 of the <laughs> NFL CBA. So the suspension stems from an incident that happened, I want to say, in... July of 2016. Thank you. Uh, He and his girlfriend at the time, um, he is alleged to have assaulted her over a number of days. I think it's like five days in July. Um, And then again, I don't know when, I would assume the St. Patrick's Day parade was after that. Right. Was that March March of of this year? 2017, yeah. roped a woman? Mm Mm-hmm. Allegedly. Did they, was he charged with that? I don't think he... Um, so there were criminal charges that were later dropped in the initial uh, altercation between he and his girlfriend. Excuse me. Um, but I don't know about whether or not there were criminal charges in the groping incident at the St. Patrick's Day parade. And his now ex-girlfriend, Tiffany Thompson, did allege that he beat her up on occasions before this whole string of incidents in July of 2016. Um, but in suspending Elliot, the NFL didn't cite any of those. They were really focused. They seemed very focused on um, what happened that one week in July of last year. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there was an investigation, and I don't know if this is how the how it works now um, under the NFL's investigative policies, but there was an investigation. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott and his legal team were presented with the findings of the investigation and then there were four consultants who were called to weigh in on I guess the results of the investigation and all the the evidence and their findings were also incorporated as part of the overall finding of the NFL and this information was also turned over to Ezekiel Elliott and his legal team and they were able to engage the um, consultants in their own questioning and you know, trying to talk to them about, you know, how they arrived at the conclusions that they arrived at. And all of this information was then bundled in terms of what was, I don't know if it was ultimately presented to the commissioner to say, okay, this is, these are now going to be my findings, or if the commissioner just then signed off on that giant packet of information. 
Yeah, the way that it was, um, I've seen it described is that basically this group of four experts made a recommendation to Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, um, and that he kind of evaluated that and kept that in mind as he was making his own judgment. Um, but the fact that he accepted their recommendations, I think, is viewed by some people, um, and even the engaging of this kind of expert team to do sort of the initial uh, review of all the information is seen as um, sort of trying to legitimize Goodell's decision since I, I think not just from Patriots fans who had plenty of reasons to be frustrated with what happened with the Deflategate situation, but it was kind of a, it's been a cry um, in a lot of these investigations that Goodell acts as judge, jury, and executioner, and it seems like he's ever going to overturn himself. Why would he? So this puts a uh, patina of legitimacy on his decision whether um, it's right or not. Um, but that's might be some of the rationale behind using these folks. I'm not sure. I wasn't able to find out if the changes, excuse me, to the domestic violence policy um, for the NFL actually require him to use this expert advisory panel or if that was just a choice that the league made in this particular instance. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it is something that was um, sort of triggered by the new-ish domestic violence policy or if it is, as you say, an attempt to um, allow Roger Goodell to arrive at these conclusions based on, you know, the, the opinions of expert along with, you know, an investigative report and medical evidence and whatever other evidence was reviewed as part of the overall investigation. Um, because he sure shit is not an expert in reviewing domestic violence allegations or engaging in investigations or punishing people or doing anything. I thought I had read, <laughs> I thought I had read in an article um, by Mike Florio um, that if the decision to punish uh, Ezekiel Elliott came from the commissioner then the appeal would go to someone other than the commissioner, whereas if the decision to punish um, Elliot had come from someone else other than the commissioner, then the commissioner could hear the appeal. I mean, that's very similar to what happens in our jobs, but I thought I had read that earlier today. Hmm. But, you know, I read a lot today, so who knows? I might be getting super confused. Um, Elliot has said uh, that he plans on appealing his suspension and... um, and raised a bunch of issues about how they strongly disagree with the decision and the evidence. And um, a lot of the centers around uh, Tiffany Thompson's friend who has uh, maybe some damning information about whether or not Tiffany Thompson asked her to lie about what had happened and things like that. But I think it was clear from the four consultants that they found uh, Tiffany Thompson to be more credible um, as a witness than, than others. Yes, and um, it sounds like um, Ezekiel Elliott's attorneys, um, their statement, um, I mean, it's basically saying the NFL should be prepared to go to war over this. Um, some th- Their statement uh, goes something like this. Uh, the NFL's findings are replete with factual inaccuracies and erroneous conclusions, and it, quote, cherry-picks so-called evidence to support its conclusion while ignoring other critical evidence. For example, both the Columbus Prosecutor's Office as well as the NFL investigators expressly concluded and conveyed to our office and others that the accuser was lying about an alleged July 22nd 
2016 incident whereby she accused Mr. Elliott of pulling her out of a car and assaulting her. An allegation that was ultimately undermined by her own friend's affidavit, which stated that no such assault occurred. The affidavit also outlined the accuser's plan to orchestrate a story to police in order to corroborate her false allegation of assault. In addition, the NFL's own medical experts concluded that many of her injuries predated the week in question and likely occurred during a period of time when Mr. Elliott was not in contact with the accuser. During the upcoming weeks and through the appeal, a slew of additional credible and controverting evidence will come to light. Um, And I think that that's normally the tactic in how you would try to undermine an investigative report or findings is that, um, you know, witnesses are not credible. And it very well may be that Ms. Thompson um, might have fabricated one of the incidents, but it's very clear in the letter that the NFL wrote to Ezekiel Elliott that it was not based on a single incident. It was based on multiple incidents in July and also the uh, St. Patrick's Day groping that happened later on. So it's the six games is the cumulative effect of all of these individual um, incidents. So it's not any one incident that gave rise to the suspension. Um, and, you know, and as an investigator, even if you find that a person may have fabricated or lied about one thing, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've lied about everything else. Sure. Um, and I understand that some of the consultants relied on um, what they really seemed to harp on was the metadata of the pictures taken of the uh, injuries indicating that the pictures, the injuries you know, were contemporaneous with when she had said that she had been assaulted. Uh, So one of the um, sort of questions that has come up surrounding the Ezekiel Elliott case is the application of punishments by Roger Goodell um, and the NFL to um, sort of like situations. In particular, um, Josh Brown of the New York Giants uh, I think this is a case we actually, or an incident we actually talked about earlier on in the podcast, um, earlier on in our podcast season, not this podcast, <laughs> um, was uh, he admitted to abusing his now ex-wife. Um, there were writings, I believe, in his journals that were turned over to the police, and ultimately the NFL got their hands on it, um, where he described pretty horrible things he's done to his wife. Um, he... He admitted what he did, um, but the question has been raised, like, is what Ezekiel Elliott is alleged to have done really six times worse than what Josh Brown did? Another sort of controversial twist in this whole case is that um, Lisa Friel, who is the NFL's head investigator on cases of domestic violence, is a giant super fan. Um, she was apparently accosted by Jerry Jones in the fall, um, who was basically like yelling at her that, you know, I know that your your bread and butter is investigations, but this is going to get us both thrown out on the street. Um, he was then escorted out of the hotel bar by a public relations um, person after shouting at Ms. Friel. Uh, but there has been a concern with her, not that she's not great at her job, but that, you know, given that she's such a huge Giants fan, like to the point that her basement is all decked out in Giants <laughs> stuff, and she and her kids, at least before she took this job, um, would go to Giants games, all of their home games. Um, there's some, cons- you know, question as to why is it that a Dallas Cowboys player is getting like this crazy big suspension I don't think that six games is all that bad for beating up your girlfriend, but, you know, this is Dallas Cowboys fans talking. Um, (laughs) 
Whereas Josh Brown of the New York Giants only got one game, even though he admitted to doing some pretty horrifying things to his ex-wife. Um, were the things that he... So I can't remember. I know that we did talk about this, and I just can't remember. Um, did his ex-wife press charges? Did, did it, I guess, did it come to light through a police report? I believe it did. It was investigated. So Josh Brown used to play for the Seattle Seahawks. Mm-hmm. He uh, was investigated by the King County Sheriff, I think it it was, not the Seattle PD. Um, And uh, my understanding was that that's how these journals came to light. They were turned over to police as part of an investigation. I can't remember. I can't remember. What I can't remember off the top of my head, though, is if that criminal investigation ever went anywhere or Mm -hmm. just became very publicized and the NFL felt compelled to act. Um, yes. So I'm, I mean, I don't really know how the NFL domestic violence investigative unit works. Um, I don't know if it's just Lisa Friel is the one who goes around and does them all, or if mm-hmm. she has an army of investigators who goes and does all of these things, or, and if she is the one who has the final say in whether or not she makes actual recommendations to Roger Goodell and all of that. So I think all of that probably comes into play in terms of whether you can accuse, like, whether Jerry Jones or Dallas Cowboys fans can basically impugn someone's integrity on a very, you know, significant issue um, like domestic violence and chalk it up to just being a fan of a team. Because, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Golden State Warriors, but if Draymond Green punched a guy, it's not like I'm not going to say, dude, stop hitting people. Like, you know, Um, and so to me it's – I understand the frustration, but I also believe that people don't have a really good understanding of like the job of an investigator mm-hmm. and sort of the principles that you have to abide by as an investigator because you not only are um, you're I mean you're putting your own credibility on the line when you make these findings, and if your findings don't stand up to scrutiny, then you're not worth anything as an investigator. And so I would imagine that your shelf life as an investigator would be really short. Right, and you know, uh, some of Jerry Jones' comments ring sort of hollow because he was all for all kinds of punishment when it's other teams, <laughs> oh. and he, you know, stood by Greg Hardy and somehow tried to make it sound like Greg Hardy was his own victim or something. Um, but now that the tide has turned and it's a Cowboys player that's being negatively impacted mm-hmm. by decisions from the commissioner's office, now he has a problem. So um, I, I think. Uh, David Steele from the Sporting News put it really well where he wrote a column that was entitled, you know, the NFL may be right on Ezekiel Elliott, but it doesn't mean that I trust them. Yep, and um, that's totally fair because, as you said, that they're, the discipline that they've um, been doling out has been wildly inconsistent, and it doesn't seem like they have any particular standards um, that they're adhering to in terms of why six games versus one game versus two games versus no games. Right. Um, yeah. Um, and there is speculation that Jerry Jones might try and sue the NFL for this, although um, he, since the Cal, unlike with Deflategate, where the um, team, the Patriots, was actually punished for what happened, um, the Dallas Cowboys as a team have not been punished for this. So he likely does not have standing to file a lawsuit, yes. but I'm sure. Sh- uh, Rules don't always, old white men don't always think rules apply to them, so he might try. Um, yeah. So as this case develops, we will, um, something else we'll, we'll keep updating y'all on. Yeah. 
Um, so moving to um, our sixth topic for today, I'm going to turn it over to Burke because this falls well within her NHL wheelhouse. So um, former NHL uh, forward Danny Heatley, he was picked um, number two overall by the um, Atlanta Thrashers. Uh, he did not have a particularly illustrious career in the NHL, however. Um, he was awarded um, a $6.5 million judgment against his former agent, Stacey McAlpine, um, earlier this week. Um, Heatley has played played for a variety of teams in the NHL. He last team he played for was a team in Germany. He's out of hockey um, at this point. Uh, but while he was playing for the Minnesota Wild back in 2012, um, he filed a lawsuit against his former agent McAlpine and the agent's parents, Gerald and Eugenia. Um, <laughs> seeking $11 million in damages based on a number of what he referred to as faulty real estate investments throughout North America. Um, The allegations were that uh, his agent and his agent's parents lured him into a series of real estate ventures across Canada and the U.S., promising huge returns that never materialized. Um, But it also alleged that the former agent, McAlpine, I'm not sure if it's McAlpine or McAlpine, it's spelt like the Alpine... Yeah. woods mm-hmm. with a mick in front of it uh, <laughs> anyway um, uh, it's also alleged that the former agent basically stole over four million dollars from his bank accounts mm-hmm. just took money um for no without any authorization so heatley was awarded um a little over four million dollars from a defendant company uh presidential suites inc and about 2.4 million dollars from waterfront development inc um, it appears these are both entities that are related to McAlpin. Yeah, so McAlpine. I be- <laughs> yeah, so I believe that they're um, they're development companies that were either somehow involved with McAlpine's parents or um, with McAlpine himself. Uh, so that's where yeah. So it's and this is not um, Heatley is not the only hockey player Correct. to have sued. Um, uh, Stacy McAlpine, uh, Chris Phillips, who was a defensive stalwart for the Ottawa Senators, um, which is a team that Danny Heatley played on for a bit, um, also sued McAlpine for about and his parents for about three point two million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, again, related to losses from these real estate companies and um, unapproved investments. What's not totally clear to me is whether the money that McAlpine t- allegedly took from Heatley's bank account. Did he use that to fund real estate investments, or did he just steal the money? I think that I think that the money that he took from his bank account was to for investments. Whether it's real estate investments or other investments, it was for investments. Read that in the Globe and Mail. Oh, nice. Um, so good for Danny Heatley, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, it seems like this guy preyed on um, a number of NHL players. I guess it'll be interesting to see if more of them um, sort of come out of the woodwork um, to file suit against Stacy McAlpine. Um, but this is not Danny Heatley's, not to dredge up a sad past, but this mm-hmm. is not Danny Heatley's first um, brush with the law. Back in 2003, when Heatley was playing for the um, the Atlanta Thrashers, he was in a fatal car crash um, when he was driving his Ferrari 360 Modena, um, lost control of it, crashed into a wall. The car split in half and ejected him and his then-teammate Dan Snyder 
from the vehicle. Heatley suffered a number of injuries, um, but Snyder was injured um, even more severely. Um, significant head injuries and a skull fracture. He died six days after the accident of sepsis. Um, Heatley was charged. I know, which I, know. I read that and thought, like, well, how is that Danny Heatley's fault if he got an infection at the hospital? But I guess I'm not a doctor, so I probably shouldn't like, be opining on such things. I was just thinking, sepsis isn't that what they got in like World War II? And like, yeah. not a, this is not a modern day thing to die of. No, uh, apparently it is. I wonder if it was that like superbug MRSA uh, that yeah. is going to kill us all. Um, anyway, Heatley uh, was charged with vehicular homicide after this accident. Um, he did admit to drinking earlier in the night, but his blood alcohol levels were tested. He was not above the legal limit in Georgia at the time of the accident. Um, he ultimately pled guilty to second-degree vehicular homicide, um, so he was not subject to jail time. He um, got three years probation. Right, and he was... Uh, they put limits on the kind of car he could own, which I thought was sort of interesting. Um, his vehicle could not have, well, one, his vehicle had to be court approved. Two, <laughs> vehicle couldn't have more than six cylinders in its engine and could not surpass 70 miles an hour, um, which I guess is what happens when you're so stupid that you drive 80 miles an hour on like a residential street and kill your friend. Um, wow. So, um, other interesting wrinkle to this story is that the judge who sentenced him, Roland Barnes, um, a couple years later, was killed by a defendant who, um, like, broke free in court, shot the judge, oh, murdered a bunch are... of people that were in the courtroom, and then fled. Those um, are horrible. That guy's name is Brian Nichols. Um, so, it's just a long tangled web um but very very weird aside <laughs> yeah so anyway um danny heatley uh was ultimately traded by the thrashers to the ottawa senators in part i think to give him a fresh start mm -hmm. um and he played you know about 12 more years um after that accident um and it sounds like he lost a significant amount of his money to his um sleazy agent but um hopefully uh it's not clear to me that mcalpin has the money to pay this yeah he is no longer a certified um agent in for nhl players i did read that but you know you had said earlier that Heatley didn't have a, a pretty how did you phrase it i believe an illustrious in a, yeah but he did have back-to-back -back 50 goal seasons and that's not that's not nothing to sneeze at I mean, it's not. I guess usually, well, two things. One, he was drafted after, so he was the number two pick in the same year that Rick DiPietro was drafted by the New York Islanders. And mm -hmm. for hockey fans, Rick DiPietro is kind of notorious for being like hockey's Mr. Glass because like you breathe on him and he breaks. There was mm -hmm. a meme going around, if I'm remembering correctly, that basically had his face on like Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> Um, the Islanders signed him to like a 15-year 15, 15 contract. Oh, my God. It was a real bad scene. So as compared to Rick DiPietro, Danny uh -huh. Heatley did pretty well for himself. Um, he was never really the same after that accident, although his 50-year, his 50-goal seasons did come, come after, after that, the accident. Yeah. Um, but I think those were also in years where goal scoring was generally up. Oh. Not to downplay his accomplishments, but in any event, um, he... You know, now has, I guess, something to be. He's gotten some measure of justice against this agent who clearly uh, took advantage of him and other people in the NHL. Whether or not he sees any of that money is, is another thing. Right. And it's kind of interesting that the. Because uh, there. When we talked about the. Um, 
Clinton Portis mm-hmm. case where, you know, the NFLPA seemed to kind of try and wash its hands of any responsibility for oh, listing the, the people who mm-hmm. stole his money um, as certified agents. It seems like the NHLPA has stepped in here to be like, no, no, don't. This guy's <laughs> bad news. Because um, he is bad news. Well, yeah, clearly. Um, so, yeah, I think that case is resolved, so I don't know that we'll have any updates yep. on that one. Uh <laughs> Unless Danny Heatley uh, has to take action to try and recover that money. so Yes. Oh, yeah. That's probably going to happen as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, our seventh story is not really a legal issue either, but um, listener mailbag. Yeah, we were asked to just talk about the very sad news that Anna Ferris and Chris Pratt publicly announced their separation, um, I think, last weekend, maybe? Um I don't really know that we've got a ton to say about this, but it is um, it is sad. They were a fun celebrity couple. Mm-hmm. Um, they seemed to be happy and work really hard at their relationship. And, yeah, they uh, just seemed, I think, as compared to some other celebrity couples, and I know this is probably all a persona because celebrities exist in a sphere that are is very different from the sphere that we the rest of us exist in. Um, but they just seem more down to earth than maybe like a Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. They weren't, you know, jetting around the world and living in France for six months or, you know, right. deciding that I'm going to be my homesteads in Cambodia for the next year or whatever. Um, they seemed to be more like, you know, people who buy coffee at Starbucks or like shop at Sprouts, according to Us Magazine or whatever. Um, and I was re- I was listening to another podcast where one of the hosts um, once interviewed Anna Ferris, and she was talking about how she was like a young interviewer and didn't really know what she was doing and that their initial interview, like it was fine, but it wasn't that great. And so mm-hmm. she like was getting ready to fly back. To, she was flying back to New York the next day. Um, she runs into Anna Ferris at the in the ladies' room of the hotel where they did the interview, and Anna Ferris is like, "Oh, what are you doing now?" And this woman was like, "I'm not really sure. I may go see some friends. I don't know." And Anna Ferris is like, "Do you want to come back to my house for some wine?" And then they hung out for another four hours, and um, this lady got a lot more better information for her um, her piece on Anna Ferris, and just said she's super lovely and as nice as she appears to be um, in her interviews. So. Um, so yeah, the whole story does seem pretty sad. I think they were both fun fact about them. They were both from Washington, they mm-hmm. Washington State. Um, grew up a few towns apart, but never met until they That's moved right. to Los Angeles, LA. Yeah, and I think that um, I think that now that they have announced their split, uh, period, you know, magazines like Us or you know any actually anybody now is trying to pick apart. Um, you know, did we see signs? Did we know this was happening? Anna Ferris gave this you know very um, personal interview about how hard it was in Hollywood to raise a family because you know one person's gone for months at a time during shoots and all of this stuff. And so I mean, I think there's been a lot of the over analyzing of the you know rise and fall of their relationship and. I'm sure it's a very personal and private thing for them. And he became a really big star after they got married. Mm -hmm, Um, Like, he was like dad bod Andy from Parks and Rec, and then all of a sudden now he's like a superhero, and Mm -hmm. he's in Jurassic Park movies. and um, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes. Yeah, and not to say that that's uh, why they split Mm -hmm. up, but it certainly seems like that would be a big change if you go into a relationship being like the... Yes. The peacock, and then you're not anymore. That could be tough. 
Um, he gave a hilarious interview with Graham Norton a few years ago. I can't remember. It might have been the first Jurassic Park movie that he did, but he um, was trying to portray how naive and gullible he was when he first arrived in L.A., and basically he was hanging out on Sunset or somewhere, and a guy came up to him and acted like he knew him, like, oh, hey, how are you, you know, what what are you up to? And so he engaged Chris in this conversation, and Chris basically said, yeah, I need headshots, I'm an actor. And the guy's like, oh, I'm a photographer, why don't you come back to my place and I'll take your photographs for you. And, and maybe I'll skin you and chop your head off <laughs> exactly. or something. <laughs> and everyone in the audience of the Graham Norton show, you know, all groaned because they knew what bad things were going to happen to him. But, I don't know, maybe, like, Chris Pratt is touched by the hand of God or something. But he went back to the guy's apartment. The guy was like, why don't you take a shower, you know, and we'll do this photo shoot. And, like, he's prolonging oh, the story. And it's actually, he tells it really well. Um, and Chris Pratt's like, well, I don't really have anything to wear. And the guy's like, oh, here, why don't you wear this, like, white polo shirt that I have. And Chris is like, gee, thanks. And they go, and he actually legitimately took his headshots, and that's all that happened. <laughs> he didn't charge him any money. He was, like, super nice about it. No one got skinned alive. No one, you wow. know, had to put lotion in a basket. It was just, like, just a really happy story. And, like, and the rest of the audience was just, like, everyone was expecting the worst. I was expecting the worst, but, um... I mean, he clearly lived to tell the story, yes. so I guess it's not so bad. No. Um so, anyway, to try and put some kind of, like, legal sheen on this, um, the Chris Pratt and Anna Ferris announced they were illegally separating, which okay. is one way to dissolve a marriage in the state of California. Um, basically, you remain married, at least for a period of time, but you can't marry anybody else while you're married. Um, yeah, that's kind of obvious. Um, <laughs> it's not, I, not being a family law attorney, it's not entirely clear to me what the benefits are of legal separation versus starting the divorce process. Because in California, it is a no-fault divorce state, so you don't have to prove um, that someone's done something wrong as opposed to New York State. At least when I took the bar there, it remains a fault divorce state, which can be really fucking awkward because you have to, have to prove that someone did something wrong. Now, in New York, as I'm trying to remember from my bar prep courses, it can be something as simple as, you know, the couple, one person moves out of the marital home, and then after 90 days, you can say that they abandoned you, but that just seems shitty. Like, if you just want to have, like, an amicable, like, this mm -hmm. is not working for us yes. anymore... Um, it sets up a structure where someone has to be blamed for something. Yep. Um, I there have been I, from what I can recall, there were often calls to kind of reform the law in New York because it does seem sort of antiquated. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not an issue in California, which I believe is where these two have um, filed their legal separation papers. Yeah, um, I wonder if it's a situation. I mean, like, because Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner were legally separated for a very long time. I think they still might be. Um, I don't know that they have actually finalized their divorce, mm -hmm. but maybe it is a, a way to basically stop the continuing build of community property that needs to be split. Like you're, That's you're, true. You're basically bookending. So again, in California, we're a community property state, so any assets that you accrue during your marriage get split down the middle 50-50. Um, so maybe by creating a legal separation as opposed to uh, an ad hoc one or maybe one that is not like legally recognized you do put a bookend to the you know additional creation of more community property although i would imagine that um i don't know 
I mean, maybe they don't have a prenuptial agreement. Maybe. I don't think they were, I don't know that either of them, they've been married for eight years. Um, I don't know that either of them had a ton of assets at the time they got married. And a lot of times that I think is what drives a decision to get a prenup um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just wanting to have kind of an easy way to split up your assets in the event you get a divorce. Um, So, and now they have a child. um, Mm -hmm. So that might throw a wrench into things if they even had a prenup. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, as you said, when they got together, he was dad bod Andy, and she was the more famous of the two, and, you know, in movies and things, not super great movies, but still in movies, so, I mean, it would have been... I mean, Just Friends was hilarious. Oh, is that the one with, um... Ryan Reynolds okay. and Amy Smart, where Anna Ferris is like a starlet or something and ends up at home with Ryan Reynolds trying to sabotage his, um attempt to yes. have a relationship with Amy Smart. Yes, I do remember yeah. that movie. Um, but, you know, it might have been in her interest to have a prenup at that time because she was the one who was probably going to be bringing more to the table than he was. That's true. And I in no way mean to fat shame Chris Pratt. It's just that a lot has been made out of the fact that, like, he got into remarkable shape recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of mean people have been saying now that he's hotter than he used to be. He's looking for looking to trade up, which there were allegations that he cheated on Anna Ferris with Jennifer Lawrence when they were filming Passengers, which um, was, I've heard, a terrible movie. I have not seen it. Um, and Anna Ferris did comment, I think on her podcast, she has one as well, <laughs> um, that she was much more bothered by the, those allegations than she would have expected to be because um, she felt very confident in her marriage, but it really hurt her to mm-hmm. be reading. And she trusted that Chris Pratt hadn't cheated on her, but it still bothered her a lot. So. Yeah, I thought that her comments on um, how that actually made her feel were really honest and yeah. like... Because while we stand in lines at grocery stores and flip through a National Enquirer or even an Us magazine yeah. if we want to look more highbrow, you know, these are people's lives that yeah. we are, we're reading about. And I'm sure the Kenners don't really feel that bad when we call them garbage people. Maybe it does. I don't know. The Jenners? The Jenners, yeah. Because we call, we, yeah. Oh, I thought you called them the Kenners. No, the Jenners. Okay. I know their names are Kylie and... I was also wondering if that was a portmanteau of Kardashians and Jenners. Oh, yeah, that's true. Though those, they're garbage people too, so... Yes. Um, but anyway, so very sad news. They seem like a fun couple. Um, hopefully they'll be able to dissolve their marriage um, in privacy and uh, it won't be and too... And amicably. Yes, since they do have a very adorable little kid um, who will keep them bound to each other for at least the next 13 years. Because <laughs> um, he's five, not because anything bad is going to happen to him. <laughs> I've been listening to a podcast that talks a lot about murder, so that's where my brain is at right now. So anyway, um, moving on (laughs) on. (laughs) to our last segment, the um, reality TV stoop. Um, Don't have any great updates about the dissolution of um, Countess Luann's marriage to Tom Gristides, but apparently that is still moving forward. Um, Instead, (laughs) we're going to talk about today a recent um, court case involving the daughter of a former cast member. <laughs> We're really Ro- stretching here. <laughs> but I thought this was, I, I think the, the substance of the case is pretty interesting. Yes, um, so that's true. The uh, plaintiff is a young woman named Alexa Curtin. Her mother, Lynn Curtin, um, was on the Real Housewives of Orange County for a couple seasons. She was a bit of a wackadoodle. Um, <laughs> we think she smoked a lot of weed, and um, she constantly fought with her kids, so it was a little awkward like watching them 
argue all the time, um, but I suppose that's just a uh, reality of the Housewives franchise. But in any event, um, Alexa Curtin was awarded $2.25 million in a lawsuit against um, Orange County uh, after an alleged sexual assault by a Orange County Sheriff's deputy. So this is a pretty um, awful story. Um, Ms. Curtin um, was apparently involved in a domestic domestic dispute with her then-husband, called the police. Um, The Orange County Sheriff's showed up at her home. Um, They, you know, took statements from Curtin and her husband, um, told the husband to stay in the house. They escorted Curtin back to her um, car and, um, you know, basically told them they had to stay away from one another for the night for the night um they did the deputies did conclude though that no crime had occurred it was just a a a loud fight i guess was the conclusion they came to um they brought her back to her car then um allegedly nicholas carapino um who's the sheriff's deputy told curtin to get in the back of um his patrol car slammed the door on her took her to where she had parked her car um, made her lean against the hood of his patrol car and uh, put her hands behind her back, even though she's been charged with no crime. Correct. Let's keep that in mind. Um, and to give him her car keys. She did all of that. Um, he then told her she couldn't leave unless he saw her license and registration, which, unclear why that was yes. irrelevant um, at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, if she had been inebriated, well, if she had been drunk, you shouldn't have been letting her take the car Correct. anyway. Um, if she had the keys to the car, what the hell does it matter? Um, anyway, the whole thing seems extremely fishy, um, but he wouldn't let her touch her purse. He then went hunting through her purse for the license and registration. Um, he then told her, because he couldn't find the license and registration in her purse, because who the fuck keeps their car registration <laughs> in their purse, um, that he had to search her car. He said he couldn't find... Um, her license or registration in the car, but he did find something, and then he pulled out a pair of underwear that were used. I will not describe use the very graphic terms yeah. that were um, included in this uh, recitation of facts, um, and he wanted her to explain that to him. <laughs> I can't even. Um, so she testified. She was shocked and confused, had no idea what he was talking about. He gave her the keys to her car, told her to get inside, um, but then told her she was not allowed to leave and threatened her if she tried to leave. He drove away. She tried calling her family, but it was 2 o'clock in the morning, so of course no one answers the phone. Um, the Carapino shows back up 20 to 30 minutes later, um, and then he allegedly um, entered the vehicle and sexually assaulted and raped Curtin. This is such a terrible story. It's really awful, and they asked, she was asked, um, excuse me, Carapino, the sheriff's deputy, was asked if any of this was true, um, and if he was acting under the color of his authority when he assaulted her, um, and he consistently took the Fifth Amendment, which, um, it shouldn't be, you know, it's hard to... I mean, the Fifth Amendment, like, you're not supposed to make an assumption that just because someone asserts their Fifth Amendment right that they've done something wrong or mm-hmm. that they're guilty. But it's, in reality, like, if you haven't, if you're not going to, if what you would say 
wouldn't incriminate you. Then why not say it? Then why not say it? Yeah, <laughs> like you can't be incriminated if you haven't done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in any event, she won uh, two and a quarter million dollars from Carapino and the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Um, the uh, district attorney's office in Orange County confirmed that he was under investigation for um, criminal charges. Excuse me. Um, there were additional incidents of misconduct that came out as part of that mm-hmm. um, investigation. Um, and uh, the scope of the investigation largely focused on his criminal conduct and not sort of training failures with the sheriff's department. Um, but they did not find sufficient evidence to charge him with any crimes at the end of that um, would it be safe to assume that he was fired from his job? I mean, one would certainly hope so. One would hope, but you and I both know that that's no, and not it, always the case. No, and um, in so oh, in California, there are pretty robust protections for um, police officers and sheriff's deputies um, in terms of their employment. Uh, There's a really infamous case of a San Jose police officer who raped somebody on duty and didn't get fired for like two and a half years. Yes. Um, It's not just police. I mean, there are probably enhanced benefits for police officers and for uh, sheriffs and also for fire personnel, but just public employees in general in California have extensive due process rights when it comes to losing their jobs or any sort of significant benefit of their jobs, including like salary or compensation um, when... uh, you know um when there's alleged misconduct so yeah it it is and then i think it's fair to say that there are heightened um or heightened limitations for what you can do to police officers or at least how you can act in terms Mm -hmm. of police officers and firefighters they seem to have like broader rights to information and Mm -hmm. investigations um so carapino um just to confirm he was he is no longer a um sheriff's deputy in orange county um what is not clear to me, and we can probably do a little bit more research to find this out, is whether he has been reemployed somewhere else um, and why mm-hmm. he's no longer with the um, Orange County Sheriff's Department if he was fired or if he left of his own accord. Um, he may have resigned upon threat of termination, so I guess yeah. we wouldn't know um, that. But the um, in response to this verdict, the county issued a statement saying that it does not condone the alleged conduct of former def- Deputy Carapino. But then it points out the criminal investigation that was conducted by the district attorney's office, also an arm of the county, uh, resulted in no charges against Carapino. I mean, I think the, I feel like we talk about this a lot, but I think the thing to keep in mind always when you're looking at, well, there weren't criminal charges um, issued against this person, so it means they didn't do anything wrong, is not not right, um, because there's a much higher threshold for proving a criminal case versus proving a civil case as was seen here there may not have been sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this sheriff's step former sheriff's deputy raped alexa Curtin, but um clearly there was a preponderance of evidence that proved that he engaged in wrongdoing um which is how the civil jury was able to um reach their unanimous verdict and um find against him he was issued a notice of dismissal um, by the Orange County Sheriff's Department in August of 2015, according to court documents. Oh, great. So it only took a year to fire him. That's something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, 
really, if you compare it to the officer in San Jose that took, what, two and a half I years? I mean, I guess that's true, yeah, that they moved pretty swiftly here. Um, so... It did take nine months of from the time the investigation began until he was placed on administrative leave. So he was just, like, out in the world, mm-hmm. sheriff's deputying. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, this guy is in Athens, so I don't know that. That's, that's not him. Yeah, he's also a physical therapist, I yes. think. <laughs> so before we start saying that all these terrible yeah. people that we're looking so at, so there are also people. There are totally innocent people named Nicholas Carapino. <laughs> yes. Um, Just yeah. So uh, yeah, I I, I mean I, I would at least again not legal advice, but I would have counseled you know my client to have put him on administrative leave immediately. Right, because at that point, what if he had attacked somebody else? Exactly. Then and that you're would be on my, notice. Yeah, that's my, that would be my fear, and that would be my fear for my client. Um, and it sounds like the investigation that the district attorney's office undertook found misconduct prior to what happened to Miss Curtin, not subsequent to. So um, from that perspective, you know, whether the, the, the sheriff's department should have been looking into this earlier is uh, sort of a separate issue, mm-hmm. but... Um, in terms of what the county could be held liable for, um, you know, in terms of what they knew, um, it's a bit of a different situation than if he had attacked more people after he um, assaulted his yeah. curtain. He sounds like a certifiable garbage person, too. Right, but mm-hmm. yet he was employed and had the full power of the county and uh, yeah. state behind him and was armed. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. On, on that happy, I mean, it is kind of a happy note. Like this horrible thing happened to this young woman, but she got um, some justice here. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess putting a dollar value on it maybe is a little bit of cold comfort um, since the guy was not held criminally responsible. But no, and nonetheless, she was sexually assaulted. A jury of her peers um, found that uh, this man and his employer needed to be held responsible for a mm-hmm. awful, awful thing that happened to her. So. Yep. Um, from that perspective, I think that is ending on a on a good note. Um, it is for us anyway. Well, yeah, I know it's kind of a it's a good but depressing note. I yes. don't know. Um, so I think that's it for us this week. Um, we covered a lot of ground here, so thanks for hanging in there with us. Um, as always, if you want to reach out to us, you can shoot us an email at underfurtherreview.bg at gmail.com. Um, you can also reach us on social media at t- uh, our Twitter and Instagram handles are UFR underscore BG. Um, and our website yes. is um, under further review dash BG.com. Yeah, that's it for us. All right. So thanks for hanging into the end of the episode and we will be back with you next week. Bye. Bye.